This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, Dr. Gerald Horn's new book explores the roots of white supremacy and capitalism centuries ago in colonialism and the slave trade. And Malcolm X changed the way Black people saw themselves and their place in the world. We'll discuss a new book on Malcolm titled Black Minded. But first, a Minneapolis judge is moving towards jury selection in the second-degree murder trial of the policeman that killed George Floyd, setting off protests that put tens of millions in the streets. At the height of the turmoil, the Minneapolis City Council talked about getting rid of their police force in its present form. But Sam Martinez of the Twin Cities Coalition for Justice for Jamar Clark says there's been no movement towards defunding or abolishing the police, and what's needed is community control of the cops. As far as updates regarding the disbandment or even defunding of the police, as far as the city council, that hasn't gone very far at all. You know, there were some minor adjustments that were made to the budget of the police, nothing very significant. And as far as disbanding, they just actually found a new place for the precinct that was operating to kind of be housed in temporarily. So nothing besides the hiring freeze that's occurring in most local and state governments. There's nothing really just being disbanded or dismantled or unfortunately defunded at this time. Well, I guess it's pretty easy to say we're going to take steps towards defunding police when we know that all municipal services are going to be cut back drastically in this great depression brought on by COVID. Yes, and that's exactly the city council. It's a very liberal and not the nice liberal way that people like to think of liberal. It it is very neoliberal and There's different people of different race and ethnicities and gender, and it's a lot of younger people now, and it's easier for them to play into this, oh, we're going to be the good guys and good people kind of mentality when we know that they really actually don't even have to do anything and they won't do anything. So yes, that's very true. When the Minneapolis City Council or members of that council said that they were going to move to getting rid of the police department as we have known it, how did your coalition, the Twin Cities Coalition for Justice for Jamar, how did you react to that? Did you take them seriously? No, we've been doing this work here since Jamar Clark was killed in November 2015 in North Minneapolis here, and we have been letting the city council know, letting other people know that what happened with George Floyd wasn't going to stop unless the community had control over the police. And we've been working towards community control of the police now for three years. We've been telling them this for the past three years is that it wouldn't change unless power was turned back over to the people via community control of the police. And so that is why we've been working on that and continue. The demands have not changed 
We've refined them a little bit. You know, obviously, we stand by families and we want these cases reopened as well for the X amount of years that these murders of black and brown and indigenous and even white working class people have happened. Yes. How can you contemplate a remake of the police without some element of community control and expect to placate those who created the situation in which the city council had to consider these kinds of measures? Yeah, there is basically across the country this nonprofit industrial complex, which reinforces the political system whether it's Democrat or Republican, or we even have a Green Party member locally in ours. But this triangulation between the people in charge, the politicians, they have their businesses and their moneyed peoples that they back up, and then they use the police, and then inside of that mix comes the nonprofits. And so we've been kind of on the opposite side of that, and luckily we have other community groups like we work with closely that we're trying to combat that because the politicians, they won't do anything. This has been going on for hundreds of years, this policing system. And so we know that we need community control of the police to combat it via an all elected civilian police accountability council with there not being conflicts of interest and that have the hiring and firing power, the power over the police rule books have real democratic control, um, eliminating special interest money in these elections, which obviously, you know, is going to be a huge process, and making sure that we don't have ex-police officers or ex-police family members sitting on this board, because we need the community, the most impact communities, like the Black and Indigenous people who've been the most impacted by police killings, especially here in Minnesota, you know, per population, those are the highest people that are impacted. And we want to see a board where the North Side especially has historically been a black neighborhood and parts of South Minneapolis have been historically black. And we want those people, all of our peoples and indigenous peoples too, to be in charge of what happens in their communities and really making that change. So your coalition is demanding community control of police, but what about the other sectors of the movement? And I ask that question because many Black Lives Matter chapters have not demanded community control of police. They keep saying defund and abolish, but not community control. Yeah, And so we have formed a group around us and other leaders, especially black community organizations and black leaders, progressive leaders, and multi-racial, multi-ethnic coalition. And the other side, the reason why that's happening, and we saw this, because when you use this language of defund, you don't have any parameters on it. It's a one-time budgeting thing. And more importantly is what has been happening actually in the past two years plus of budgeting cycles is we've seen these same people that legislated and did the organizing around the defund movement. What they did is they advocated for that money to get pumped into the nonprofit industrial complex here locally. And there were things that were created, like there was an office of nonviolence prevention that was created. And that in theory is really great. And it does have potential. And we do want to see money go back into communities but we want to see it in forms of less taxes for people because there's a lot of residents who are losing their homes because of high taxes. We don't want to see it 
go into a nonprofit where there's an executive director that makes hundred or two hundred thousand dollars a year when that money could have been given directly back into the community or creating community ran programs instead of people's salaries who really aren't doing anything to help our people in our communities or even stopping or holding police officers accountable for the violence and atrocities that they commit historically and every day. So you seem to be saying that defund actually results in a kind of quick trick that gets some folks funded, but no power to the people. Exactly. And that's why even regular working day people, working class black folks in our communities know that just because they talk about defunding, it doesn't address the historical um, atrocities. It doesn't reconcile what happens every day to working people in the streets. It doesn't bring more money back into the communities. It is a complete sleight of hand. And that's what we are working with our communities with. And we're not against defunding. Like we see in the future, the community control of the police, that will be something. It will have to be because they have, will have budgetary powers. But we don't want to see this money taken and then just shoved into coffers of just a different sort. We want it truly the power to be given to the people. And not only that, economic power being given to people, real economic power, not this sleight of hand. After George Floyd was killed, it was popular mobilizations that brought the establishment in Minneapolis-St. Paul to its knees. Are you prepared to do it again? The movement here in Minneapolis and Minnesota and St. Paul is extremely strong. I think that's been proven, and not just locally, across the country, the fight for Black lives and Black liberation has reached ahead. And the people are, are tired. They're sick and tired of living in the same ways, under the same oppressive conditions as they've been living for their lifetimes, but also hundreds of years of the oppression. And so the people are ready. Our job in the Twin Cities Coalition for Justice for Jamar and our other local community organizations is to bring leadership and to bring understanding of where we need to go next. So that's our biggest role. And we believe in the power of the people and it's a chant. But in the past three months here, we've truly begun to see what that actually looks like. And we know that people are not satisfied. And so that's why we continue to do this work. Yes, people are sick and tired, but people can get sick and burnt out if their efforts don't result in some real change in relationships of power. Yes, agreed. And that's why over the next year, we have been working on the campaign and we're going to be doing some of the things that sometimes as hardcore activists, we get worried about, like, but we are going to do it. We're going to be doing in the next year, we're going to be looking at canvassing because we actually have to have a ballot measure to bring community control of the police. And so that means not just doing the protests and preparing the legislation, but that also means like getting into the communities and door knocking. And we've begun that work. And so we will have a structured program. And that's what's different about community control of the police and the defund movement is like, you can say defund and you can go try it, but community control of the police, you actually have to do community mobilization because there will be a democratic process that we will do our best to make sure is democratic to bring that to fruition and to make it real. 
So it's not just like this imaginary idea. It's something that's very tangible and that will be on the ballot here in the next year, not obviously 2020, but in 2021. Yes. Community control of the police is a huge organizing project that requires the community embracing its mission of shaping a security service of their own choosing. Yes, it does. And what that looks like, that conversation has already begun. And the community, that's what's amazing about what's going on. It's not only are we organizing and having the protests and having the uprising, the community is actually making choices about what that looks like. Minneapolis is actually very segregated. And traditionally, North Minneapolis was an immigrant kind of community. It was more black, but then after the last recession, you know, a lot of black folks and brown folks, indigenous folks got pushed out. But when you go into North Minneapolis with our organizer and we go and do outreach, people see the shirt, the shirt that says community control the police, and they have an automatic understanding as soon as we walk up to them of what that can mean for their lives. And that's what's very different than this idea of defunding the police or dismantling the police. It's a more abstract idea, and people know when you say community control the police what they want and what that looks like in their lives every day. And of course, your coalition is not alone in seeking community control of the police. No, we are not. We're a member of the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression. It's a long history of organization. And so we encourage people who are listening, doing anti-police terror work, anti-police crimes work, fighting back against the police in their communities. Please, please, you are not alone. This is a national movement. And to please find NAPR, it's N-A-R-P-R.org. Find them, National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, online. Email them. Get connected to a movement because that is the most important thing is, yes, we got to do our local organizing here on the ground, but also we need to be connected nationally. And in fact, in the next week here on the 19th, there's going to be a National Day of Action. And so join us in having a National Day of Action on the 19th as well. And I should mention that Angela Davis was on hand for the reformation of the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression in Chicago last year. And Angela Davis is, of course, famous for advocating the abolition of prisons and police and defunding. But she also is all in with community control of the police. That's correct. It was an honor to meet her and to have her there at the refounding of the National Alliance. You know, I've never personally been at such a large gathering, um, Black-led, left-led organization gathering and movement, and it was just an amazing honor to be there, and so we're thankful. And we welcome everybody to come and join for that reason, because it is just so powerful to be in coalition with all these amazing left and Black-led organizations fighting back and coming together and saying, we know that we all have a little bit different ideas, but we know that community control of the police and freeing political prisoners is the way forward to get to this space where we all want to be at and to see this as a way to get to black and brown liberation and, and just being honored to be in that space. That was Sam Martinez of the Twin Cities Coalition for Justice for Jamar Clark, speaking from Minneapolis.
unprecedented numbers of Americans of all races now claim to be part of the Black Lives Matter movement. But Americans in general know very little about the historical development of white supremacy. Dr. Gerald Horn is a professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston and author of more than 30 books. His latest volume is titled, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. If you want to understand why black lives don't matter under the current system, says Dr. Horn, look to the events of five centuries ago. Part of the thesis of the book we're discussing is that in order to understand white supremacy and the other ills from which it derives or which it gave rise to, you really have to understand religion. On the one hand, you have to understand the Crusades beginning in 1095 when Western European Christendom wanted to reclaim the territory that they termed the Holy Land in what we would now call historic Palestine, which on the one hand helps to bind Western European Christendom into a united force that bears the seeds of what comes to be called whiteness and white supremacy. And on the other hand, battling the Muslims creates this so-called other, this process which is easily transferred to the indigenous population of the Americas and enslaved Africans in the Americas, ultimately. Now, there are a number of way stations en route to 1492, when Columbus sails the ocean blue, which is truly the hinge moment in terms of the story that I'm telling. One comes 200 years after the Crusades in 1291, when, according to a number of leading historians, England becomes the first racist state. And if you understand how England in the 13th century is portrayed as the first racist state, you can understand how its so-called bastard offspring, speaking of the United States of America, uh, tries to uh, embellish and reclaim and renovate that title in 1776. What I mean is, it was that in 1291 that England pioneers in expelling the Jewish population. The Jewish population of England was affixed with certain noxious categories that we have come to associate with people of African descent in North America and Native Americans. That is to say, they were said to have a special odor. They were said to have horns and tails. Intermarriage and miscegenation uh, was barred with regard to them. And of course, all of those categories somehow were affixed to the Black population and Native Americans. But to get to another hinge moment that comes in 1517, a few decades after Columbus's voyage, when Martin Luther ignites the so-called Protestant Reformation, which then sweeps into London, that is to say, London begins this process of ousting the Catholics, including expropriating a good deal of their property. And of course, you can speculate that after the Pope divided the world between and amongst the Iberians, the Spanish and the Portuguese, England had little reason to stay with the Catholic Church. 
but that helps to ignite religious wars between the Protestants and the Catholics. Perfidious Albion, speaking of England, then brokers a deal with Ottoman Turkey. Ottoman Turkey is perceived as the antagonist of Western European Christendom. Of course, reference my earlier point to the Crusades in 1095. But in any case, that turned out to be a winning ticket, this alliance between London and Muslims, because London also allied with Morocco against Spain. And this leads to a couple of other turning points just to wrap up this portion of our discussion. Uh, one is this moment in 1572 when you have Rwanda-type massacres inflicted upon Protestants in Western Europe by Catholics, thousands massacred at one fell swoop. And that, of course, helps to convince the Protestant Londoners, the scrappy underdogs, that if they are going to compete with regard to this brutal process of settler colonialism, they could not emulate the Spanish, who had a first mover's advantage, but the Spanish also had a religious qualification to be a settler. You have to be a Catholic to be a settler in Florida by 1565, where, by the way, there were enslaved Africans too. But I should also say that Africans could become conquistadors or Spanish conquerors if they professed Catholicism. London, of course, had to take a different path. There were not enough Protestants at that moment to go around. So they changed the game. <laughs> they moved to effectuate an entente with those they had been warring with in their neighborhood, the Irish, the Scots, the Welsh. And once they crossed the Atlantic to seize the territory of the Native Americans, they rebranded themselves as white. This process of pan-Europeanism ultimately came to incorporate not only most of the European continent, that is to say those who had been warring on the shores of Europe were rebranded as white, that is to say, German versus British, German versus Pole, Pole versus Russian, Serb versus Croat, Northern Italian versus Southern Italian. All of a sudden, once they cross the Atlantic, they have a new identity, a militarized identity politics of whiteness. And that whiteness then morphs into white supremacy. Now, that process receives a major boost when once again, London allies with predominantly Muslim Morocco against the Songhai Empire, a major political force south of Morocco in a war that is waged against the Songhai Empire in 1591. Interestingly enough, at one point, a Songhai warrior who was going down for the count asked his Moroccan assailant, we're Muslims too, why are, are you killing us? apparently not recognizing that a page in history was turning when the question of religious salience was basically retreating in the faith of the sense for profit. In any case, with the defeat of the Songhai Empire, it has ricocheting and knock-on effects throughout the African continent, uh, softening up territories reaching as far south as northern Nigeria for the onrushing African slave trade, and that, as much as anything else, helps to give a major boost to the African slave trade, which helps to enrich Londoners too numerous to mention 
which allows for the rise of what is called the British Empire, where it was said the sun never sets because they had holdings all over the world, eventually including India, Australia, a good deal of Africa, the Caribbean, etc. Therein is the encapsulation of this story told in this book. Well, Doctor, your historical analysis immediately brings to my mind the year 1977, when then U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Andrew Young, got himself in lots of trouble when he said that the British basically invented racism. Well, yes. I start off the book with that particular vignette, and as you suggest, uh, Andy backpedaled furiously in the face of an onslaught of invective, but he had a point, but also Londoners had a point, because if it is true, and I think it is, that fundamentally what we would call racism, particularly in its anti-Black form, was invented in, in some ways in an improvisational manner by Englishmen, it was taken to a higher level, to an nth degree, by their bastard offspring in North America, now governed under the title of the United States of America. Because, as noted in my book on 1776, the counter-revolution of 1776, one of the reasons why George Washington and his comrades rebelled against London, broke the law to secede from the British Empire, is because they thought that Britain, which had been battered relentlessly by enslaved Africans, not least in the Caribbean. They thought that Britain was moving towards the abolition of slavery. They did not want to go there. It would jeopardize fortunes too grand to mention. And that fear was encapsulated in the case, Somerset's case, 1772. And so rather than accede to that uh, particular decision, uh, they rebelled. Likewise, London and the Royal Proclamation of 1762 had expressed reservation of continuing to expend blood and treasure moving west in the North American continent, waging war against the indigenous population, taking their land and turning it over to real estate speculators like George Washington. So rather than accede to that particular decision as well, George Washington and his comrades revolted, creating the United States basically because they wanted to continue seizing the land of the Native Americans and continue the African slave trade, where they become the captains of that odious commerce. By the 1790s, the United States is controlling the African slave trade to Cuba. By 1807, you see that London, after losing its major market, speaking of North America, bans London's official participation in the African slave trade. Of course, this is spurred by the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, and the Haitian revolutionaries, like revolutionaries anywhere and everywhere, wanted to spread their gospel, and they wanted to stir up abolition in their neighbors, not least Jamaica, one of the richest colonies held by London. And so London decided that the better part of wisdom was to halt the African slave trade, 1807, then move towards abolishing slavery itself by the 1830s. And then Haiti and London, for different reasons, put pressure on the United States to move in a similar direction, which unleashes forces leading to the U.S. Civil War by 1861, the abolition of slavery in the United States by 1865. So I think that Reverend Young's 
weakness with regard to his very perceptive comment, which I have to say, I'm still taken aback by the perceptiveness of his observation, is that he did not indict the country that he was then representing. That is to say, as ambassador to the United Nations of the United States of America, because if London invented racism, it was the United States that took it to untold levels of catastrophe. In relatively recent times, people have routinely been referring to the system of racial capitalism to emphasize that the system is entwined with these kinds of developments. Are you comfortable with the term racial capitalism? Well, I don't dispute it, but in some ways, ironically and perversely, it reminds me of a term like compassionate conservatism. That is to say, when you have to add a so-called modifier, in some ways it's redundant, because I think that from the origins of studies of capitalism, there has been an understanding and the recognition that racism and white supremacy have been effortlessly intertwined with this phenomenon of capitalism. After all, the African slave trade was one of the most profitable enterprises known to humankind. You can invest $1, get $1,700 back. There are those even today who would sell their firstborn for a 1,700% profit, not to mention some African they did not know. And certainly, if you look at those on whose shoulders we sit and stand, speaking of Eric Williams of Trinidad and Tobago and his book, Capitalism and Slavery, or Walter Rodney, of Guyana, the late Walter Rodney, in his book called Europe Underdeveloped Africa, or even the University of Rochester historian of Nigerian descent, Joseph Inakori, who's written voluminously on the enslaving roots of the Industrial Revolution, which came to a kind of zenith in England, there's long been a recognition of this intertwining of slavery, white supremacy, racism, and capitalism But if the idea of this notion of racial capitalism is to punctuate this idea of capitalism with this exclamation point, adding racial as an adjective, I have no problems with that at all. And Malcolm, of course, said you can't have capitalism without racism. Well, absolutely. And certainly there's glaring evidence, even as we speak, I hope that those who are listening to me do not feel that it's accidental or coincidental that the pandemic has disproportionately cut a prodigious swath through the lives of people of African descent in North America. I trust that they don't feel that it's happenstance that Black youth are more likely to be suspended from elementary school than youth of other ancestries. I trust that they don't feel that it's coincidental that we're more likely to be incarcerated, more likely to be found on death row, more likely to be gunned down by the police as these recent cases of Jacob Blake and George Floyd and Deion Kay in Washington, D.C. and Dijon Kizzy in Los Angeles tend to illustrate. So certainly, yes, racism and capitalism are two peas in the same pod. 
And it should not be surprising that in Brazil, we see the COVID-9 casualties having a distinctly racial character. And that in New Zealand, the Maoris, their incarceration rates look very much like black Americans. And of course, the Aborigines of Australia, another white British settler state, are in a terrible state of incarceration, poverty, and misery under that regime. And of course, I would add to that and tragic litany, what's happening to our brothers and sisters in Colombia, particularly in Cartagena, which has a sizable population of African descent. Cartagena needs to be seen in the same light that we see Havana, for example, as an early site for the African slave trade and with a large black population, which now I'm afraid to say is being subjected to the same kinds of police killings and police terror that one would think was unique to the United States of America, but sadly and tragically is not. That was Dr. Gerald Horn speaking from Houston, Texas. More than a half century ago, Malcolm X left his indelible mark on the black American mind. We spoke with Michael Sawyer, a professor of race, ethnicity, and migration studies at Colorado College and author of a new book titled Black-Minded, The Political Philosophy of Malcolm X. Dr. Sawyer says Malcolm X shaped the modern era of black politics and his own way of looking at the world as well. I think Malcolm X is probably, you know, net of kind of personal influences like my parents and teachers I've had is probably the biggest influence on my life and my scholarly career. Just because I grew up on the South Side of Chicago during the 1970s with kind of omnipresence of the Nation of Islam and a certain type of Black politics, and Malcolm X always served as, in my mind, as kind of an exemplar of how we should be striving to take ourselves seriously in a, in a particular way and care about ourselves. And so when I was in college, I read the uh, autobiography and it kind of changed my life. It was one of the few books that I've ever read kind of all the way straight through nonstop, right? It's, I just couldn't put it down. So, you know, that was back in the 80s, obviously. And over that 30-year period, I guess, his presence kind of haunted my intellectual life in a particular kind of way. So when I finally went back to graduate school to study Black political philosophy primarily, it was without Malcolm X until I had a conversation with Jamal Alameen, H. Rap Brown, because I wrote him a letter. And I mentioned that in the book, right? And he kind of wrote back to me. And the conversation we had, he called me from prison, was much about Malcolm X rather than Francis Fanon, who I wanted to, who I thought was the person I wanted to talk about. But really what I was doing was thinking about Malcolm X. I always thought that one of Malcolm's greatest achievements was that he made it permissible for Black folks to critique their own leaders in public and not be accused of airing dirty linen. Yeah, I agree with that. I think Malcolm X, and I think this is what is meant by him having a certain type of ethic. And to me, that's an ethical question. It's whether you're willing to hold people accountable kind of from pillar to post and not be afraid to do exactly what you just said, right? To hold them accountable in public and make people make public statements and public commitments to what they proclaim are their preoccupations that may not be actually what's going on. And Malcolm was ethical in that kind of a way. And I think that is true, right? It was a big deal to hear his critique at the time. 
coincident with the March on Washington or his critique of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, et cetera. So that's, I think, a really important aspect of understanding Malcolm X's legacy for Black thought. Well, of course, it's very clear that you're a great admirer of Malcolm, but Malcolm didn't speak the language that you have to speak every day, the language of academia. Those terms that he's famous for, House Negro and Field Negro, and calling Democrats and Republicans foxes and wolves, that's not the kind of language you hear in a political science class. No, it's not, and I think that's why... So my disciplinary formation is probably most accurately described as kind of comparative literature, which picks up kind of continental philosophy and certain types of political philosophy. So to me, it's the kind of poetics. It's the vernacular. And in many ways, this is something I learned from a professor I admire, Ronald Judy, who said at one point that the vernacular is actually thinking, right? And so when he's speaking like that, he's showing you the kind of depth of his thought in a poetic kind of way, right? And so if we think about Malcolm X in that way as a poet who's using language in order to express things that are beyond the kind of four corners of what that word absolutely means, I think that gets you to the point of seeing the kind of political and philosophical import of the way he's expressing himself. As you point out in a piece that you wrote for Black Agenda Report, Malcolm X believed that policing in the United States and police brutality in the United States are basically inseparable. Absolutely. I mean, he very early on, it's interesting to think about our current moment. And that's kind of the piece that I wrote for Black Agenda Report is to think about how it's so important now to use the kind of categories of thinking that Malcolm was pursuing in one of them probably the most important for him was his notion of police brutality and policing as it's framed in Western societal order, because he was convinced that to eradicate police brutality and policing would indicate or perhaps be the actual threshold condition of shattering the kind of systems that subjugate Black people, basically, and others who are similarly situated. So for him, police brutality is both the thing itself and the way that it's used to hold this type of democracy that creates second-class citizenship together. So it was a primary concern for him. Well, just like back in 1963, 64, 65, the Black political establishment certainly is at odds with Malcolm's positions. You don't hear anybody in the Congressional Black Caucus talking about a police state for Black people in America. No, they don't talk like that, right? And I think that's to your point a couple of questions ago about just how his language, it's not the language of the classroom necessarily, depending on which classroom you happen to be in. It's also not the language of our political leaders or elected officials. And so much of that is exactly the legacy of Malcolm X because he serves as this kind of boundary condition of what we're thinking about something like black respectability politics, right? Malcolm X has always been unruly in a particular way. And that's probably the best way to describe him. So in that kind of unruly approach to language, to critique, to the way he framed his argumentation, to everything that he was about, even his religious formation as being kind of out of the mainstream, obviously, being a, a black Muslim and then converting to Sunni Islam, is exactly that type of thing, right? And so the question that I think we need to be asking ourselves is, what might be the practical advantage of using the language of Malcolm X rather than trying to avoid it or having it serve as like or, and or else, but actually employing that system of thinking in order to kind of move ourselves towards some type of, of positive future. 
Malcolm may have been unruly in terms of violating the ruling power's rules about how black people should act, but he was a man of great discipline, wasn't he? Absolutely. And I'm using unruly as kind of a term of art, right, to think about just the way we're saying this, right? His language is obviously, there are obviously terms that are acceptable within the English language, but it depends upon how you choose to use them. And so Malcolm being unruly in that way, is he's, he's employing the tools that he has, right? Discourse, the way in which American Black people acculturate themselves, et cetera, in order to create a kind of destabilizing condition of what he sees as the social, economic, and political oppression of Black people. So in that way, any person who's focused on that is going to be considered unruly by the kind of systems of power and also systems of thinking who have a difficult time in some ways grappling with the way in which Malcolm wanted to present the ideas that he was trying to express. One of the ways that Malcolm stood out is that his speeches, his thought, was much more concerned about how we, Black folks, behave and what we do than continually indicting the oppressor for what he does. What we do about what the oppressor does is what concerns Malcolm most. Absolutely. I mean, Malcolm X is, he's a self-help book in his speeches and his actions. Right. If you think about Malcolm X's entire biography from kind of Malcolm Little to the person who was existing outside of the law in obvious kinds of ways, right, ended up in prison and then becomes this highly disciplined person. It's all about where he happens to be at that moment and taking advantage of that and, and making something positive out of whatever problems he are presented with. And one of his primary points was personal responsibility. And I don't think it's, it's not personal responsibility in the sense of, of blaming Black people for their condition, but personal responsibility in saying that if this is going to get fixed, it's not going to get fixed by relying upon white people to do it or appealing to some strange notion of white people's ethical concerns, which I think was his problem with the way the civil rights movement functioned, particularly with respect to nonviolent protests that presented black people's bodies to be harmed in order to engender some type of sympathy from white people or systems of power. He simply didn't believe that was the case and didn't believe that white America was equipped to make such a move and do something about their own excessive, internalized anti-Black hatred. In your piece for Black Agenda Report, you contest the idea that Malcolm X was in favor of violence. But in his speech to the grassroots, he said that revolution is bloody. A revolution knows no compromise. Revolution overturns and destroys everything that gets in the way. And that refers to every revolution, he says, except the so-called Negro revolution. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an important and subtle point in a particular kind of way. So I'm not claiming that Malcolm, obviously, right, he says that violence is a tool of, of revolution, violence is a tool of kind of politics, right? That's kind of Western societal order generally. But it's not the only thing that he said. And then in the speech that's coincident with Message to the Grassroots, his speech on Black Revolution, he talks about the possibility of the Black Revolution as opposed to what you articulate, the Negro Revolution, which he says is different, like the Black Revolution is different, being something like a blood, the only chance to have a bloodless revolution. He's doing two things here, right? First, he's saying that violence broadly defined by systems of power includes what we understand as nonviolent protests. So his argument is that the reason that nonviolent protesters are treated violently is because systems of power view them as violent. 
So it doesn't make any difference from Malcolm X's perspective whether you call yourself nonviolent or not, but you're destabilizing and piggybacking on the quote that you have from Message from the Grassroots. Except that you're destabilizing the systems of white supremacy. It doesn't matter if you're singing We Shall Overcome or if you're burning down buildings. Those are considered to be the same thing. And we can see this in our contemporary moment, and particularly when, let's just take Colin Kaepernick as an example, right? When his demonstration, which wasn't even a protest, right? It's a demonstration. He's not stopping the game from happening. It's viewed as attacking the troops, right? Which is necessarily a violent act. So he's making a distinction that there's no distinction between something like nonviolent and violent protest in the minds of white supremacy. The next thing that he says is that he views violence as a tool of self-defense primarily. And so very rarely... And this is how he's using the language of American political thought, particularly as it's encompassed in the Second Amendment, the way it's read now, right? This notion of self-defense is not framed as violence. It's framed as just that, right? A defense mechanism. So what he's saying is to the extent that black bodies are being attacked, that can be on an individual basis or on the basis of an institute at at the level of institutional order, then you have the right to something like self-defense, which in the language of American political thought is not violence per se. It's just that. It's self-defense, right? So what he's saying is, and I think it's important for us to understand that then violence as a last resort becomes the failure of all those different stops along the way. The first being the notion that nonviolent protests are taken violently because they destabilize systems of governance. To the extent that that still becomes unacceptable and people are attacked, then it's something like self-defense. And the final move, the final or else, as I frame it in the book, is that then it becomes necessary to go for what he frames as kind of French revolutionary violence. That's about land. That's about defeating forces. That's about neither asking for nor requiring protection from systems of power, right? That's the last step along the way. But there are many things that have to happen on the way to that. And whether that happens in kind of one incident or whether it happens over a long durée, he doesn't make a distinction between those two. And I think that that's where we can do a lot of work now, thinking more carefully about the way Malcolm X is framing something like political violence. Malcolm X said black folks should take their case to international forums based on international law and human rights rather than civil rights, that is, the laws and civil traditions of the United States. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is exemplar of what I said about him not believing that the American political mindset, as because of its total investment in kind of white supremacy, patriarchy, et cetera, was incapable of allowing civil rights to do something about what he says is the kind of practiced and externally imposed subhumanity of Black people. So what he's doing is he's saying that we're going to go to international bodies and then create a kind of transnational subjectivity. This is how he understands a black nationalism is not being grounded in kind of land ownership of the United States, which is an evolution from the position of the Nation of Islam, which was a separatist organization. What he's saying is that the black body then becomes a type of transnational body that is its own passport and can then seek membership in different collectives, whether they be other national collectives or participation in international bodies that oversee nation states in the way that the UN or the world court, the world criminal, international criminal court, et cetera, do, and then seek for them to be the body that holds the American political system to account. And he views that in itself as a violent act. Like he talks about that's, that's a central component of what he says is the bloodless revolution is this employment of international systems of justice in order to seek justice for black people. 
And then it becomes black people broadly defined, right? Because he defines all people, this is towards the latter part of his, later part of his life, he defines all people who are grieved by white supremacy, colonialism, empire, as necessarily black. And the way that we use the term now in academia, something like the global South would be what he's talking about, right? He's talking about a kind of worldwide transracial blackness that means that you are then in a position to kind of argue for the international systems of governance to elevate you to the level of human and then take your place amongst citizens in different national formations. Everybody's talking about the police and prisons and black people's relationship to U.S. policing and prisons. But back in the day, most black folks who people thought of as their leaders didn't focus on the institutional relationship between black people and police and prisons. Malcolm did, though. Right. Malcolm was, I mentioned earlier, biographically, he obviously had been in prison. So he has an understanding of prison as it is, not as a place to demonstrate as a type of political demonstration, but as prison functions as a coercive kind of threat and destruction to kind of black subjectivity. So he's preoccupied with that. And so much about the good work that the Nation of Islam was doing at the time was basically creating a sense of identity for the incarcerated that then could serve as a place for them to to reenter societal order after they were released from prison or even while still in prison to have something to glom onto rather than to be in that kind of desperate condition, you know, for the entire term of incarceration. So Malcolm is always preoccupied with the entire ecology of criminal justice, right? From the policemen on the block all the way to what judges are doing and the way sentences were being handed out. And this is all well before you know, these kind of criminal justice acts, right, that happened in in our own political, our modern kind of political formation. He was already thinking about how these things became profoundly dangerous. And, you know, he understands, like you mentioned earlier, he understands Black America to be a police state, which becomes the language of the Black Panther Party that understands it to be Black America to be a colony. He basically has already reached that conclusion, and that's what he understands incarceration and the carceral state to be the terminal condition of how that functions in American societal order. And surely the Black Panther Party must be considered the political children of Malcolm. Absolutely. I mean, the Black Panther Party, in many ways, took the ideas of of Malcolm and inserted them deep inside of their kind of ethos, right? And, And when I mentioned at the very opening of our kind of talk together, the conversation I wanted to have with H. Rap Brown about that type of radical black politics and, and activism was what I thought was going to be about France Fanon and Wretched of the Earth, which I, which I understood to be kind of the earth text of, of the movement, what they studied. He said what they were really studying was Malcolm X, and Malcolm X had already established the terms and conditions of how something like the Wretched of the Earth becomes the language that you can use in the American political environment. So he becomes the point of translation for all of that. And so that's why his, his thinking on these issues is so important. And, you know, he's a worldwide figure with respect to something like revolutionary thought and radical political thought in the same way that the Black Panther Party is exemplar in many ways of the same thing, right, of an actual organization that had a period of time where they were functioning as a kind of insurgency within a coercive political environment, which became example in many ways for many movements that have happened since then. 
And what do you think Malcolm's assessment would be of the current grassroots Black-led movement, which is often referred to as Black Lives Matter, but is actually comprised of all kinds of folks who are in motion? Yeah, I think Malcolm, obviously, when he formed the Organization of African-American Unity, he was clear about the fact that other participate, right? His big threshold condition was to understand where the money was coming from. That became a kind of mantra of his, right? It went from kind of clear separation to this point of what we would consider now something like allyship. And he found that to be fine, but he said that you couldn't control the organization and you need to understand how the funding was happening because he understood the funding to be the way that you could choke off the life of a radical political organization. So I think, Malcolm, you opened the conversation, right? He would be a harsh and kind of clear critic on the fly of everything that's happening. But I think that in broad gauge, Malcolm understood that black people have many different ways of approaching this almost impossible to eradicate problem of anti-black racism. He thinks they're all in their own way valid, but he thinks that there needs to be a certain type of ethic or into the conversation, a logic of it. And so to the extent that he found something like Black Lives Matter or any type of movement that was not firmly invested in the logic of what he understood to be black nationalism, he would have a problem with that. But I think that his thinking in many ways establishes the terms and conditions of even saying something like Black Lives Matter. And that, I think, is, again, part of the important legacy of Malcolm X. Malcolm X is such an important, iconic figure that should not have his biography overwhelm our ability to kind of take seriously the thinking that went behind the biography. So there's nothing that's happening in Malcolm X's life as we examine it kind of post his incarceration and involvement with the Nation of Islam. It's not about him thinking very carefully about the hope that black people can reach the point of being treated like human beings. And that's what he cares profoundly about. And that's what he thinks is is the kind of new world that can exist, that, that there could be a place where black people are able to be black and be comfortable and safe doing that. And I think that's his primary point of emphasis. And I think that's what, what, at the end of the day, what we can focus on as a kind of clear and coherent example of the system of thinking that Malcolm X provides us. And Malcolm X, although he certainly didn't start out that way, became what one would call an internationalist in his last years. Absolutely. And I think that Malcolm's being in motion, and this is the kind of foundational aspect of the book, I call it kind of thinking in motion, it's both a physical kind of motion, right? So as his body and, and his mind catch up with each other, it's not until he leaves America, and this is a kind of classic 1950s, 60s story, right? You hear some of this in, in the way James Baldwin describes when he first gets out of the United States and goes to Europe. It becomes an out-of-Negro body experience for Black people to then be in a place where they can understand themselves without the constant oppression of kind of the white gaze. And so when Malcolm visits Mecca and is able to tour Africa, he begins to understand much about what he had been thinking and how it can be a, a practical kind of consideration for bodies. And it becomes important that, as I mentioned, that Black American bodies become international bodies and are not tethered and dependent upon the United States and something like civil rights to give them social, political, and economic identity. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.